Today we reach the central high point of Mark's gospel. Now the pinnacle, the, the major high point, is the death and the resurrection of Jesus. However, the first half of Mark has a clear focus on this central question. And it's the question that Mark has been asking us for the last 13 months since we started this series in the middle of August last year. And so you should know the question by now and hopefully even the answer. And the question Mark is asking us is, who is Jesus? Mark skillfully develops the story, his gospel, talking about Jesus, so we are challenged time and time again to make up our mind. Is Jesus who the Pharisees claim him to be? Is Jesus who Herod claims him to be? Even who the crowd claims him to be? Or is Jesus something much more? And today, this all comes to a head with the confession of Peter. Uh, and it's an outstanding confession. It's marvellous and it's wonderful, not the least because Peter gets something right the first time. However, before we get to this high point, the central pinnacle, there is one more approach we need to scale. For the gospel sets up Peter's confession with a healing, a healing of a blind person. And this healing becomes a lens by which we can see Peter's confession better. So this morning, we're going to start with that healing and a conversion story, really. And those two stories are then going to help us appreciate Mark's confession even more. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to this wonderful climax, mid-climax in the Gospel of Mark, uh, we pray, Lord, that you will stir our hearts so that we too can join in Peter's confession. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, many here will have heard of C.S. Lewis, most I'm sure. And uh, many of you will know him through his books, especially the Narnia series. Others may know that Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien were good mates and used to critique each other's work, whether it be The Lord of the Rings or Prince Caspian. Some of you here may know or have seen the movie Shadowlands, which starred Anthony Hopkins as Lewis. Real Lewis fans will know that he was on the front cover of the Time magazine and that he also died the same day that JFK died, and so in his death wasn't really appreciated as he could have been. However, it's through Lewis's theological works that many church folk know and appreciate Lewis. Books such as Mere Christianity, The Screwtape Letters, The Great Divorce. But though we may know something of Lewis, how many have heard of his conversion story? his testimony, how C.S. Lewis, the atheist, became C.S. Lewis, the Christian. Now, I'm always up for a good conversion story, and C.S. Lewis is no exception. And so, Lewis had served in World War I, but was invalid at home, and he was lecturing at Oxford University in the late 1920s. And all the time, he was an avowed atheist. However, he writes of his conversion in the book, surprised by joy. And he writes this, You must picture me alone in that room in Oxford University, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted from it for even a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him of whom I so earnestly desire not to meet. 
See, the hound of heaven was after C.S. Lewis and he did not want to be found. But God had other ideas. In the last term of 1929, I gave in and I admitted that God was God. And I knelt and prayed, perhaps that night the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. Not a great start, really, is it? But this was not his full conversion, not by any means. This was just C.S. Lewis moving from atheism to theism, moving from there is no God to, well, yes, there is a God. I wonder who he is. It took three more years of thinking and searching, and he had narrowed it down to a choice between Buddhism and Christianity. And that all changed with a simple bus ride to the zoo. Again, in his book, Surprised by Joy. I know very well when, but hardly how the final step was taken. I was driven to Whippensnade one Sunday morning. When we set out, I did not believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. But when we reached the zoo, I did. Yet I had not exactly spent the journey in thought, nor was there any great emotion. It was more like when a man, after a long sleep, still lying motionless in bed, becomes aware that he is now awake. And it was like that moment for me on the bus. Isn't that interesting conversion? I don't, before I read that, I don't think I'd ever heard of a conversion story like that. I couldn't see the sinner's prayer anywhere in that mix. But it's that gradual process which is key to understanding both the healing of the blind man and Peter's confession. So let's dig into the scripture. Let's start at verse 22 of chapter 8 and the healing of the blind man. They came to Bethsaida and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spat on the man's eyes and put his hands on them, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Now again, we have to ask ourselves, why the fuss by Jesus? Remember, Jesus' normal mode of healing or casting out demons was to say a word, a short command. So anything that extra that Jesus adds, we need to pay attention to. So if you remember back to the leper, Jesus gave the command to be healed, but then he put a hand on the leper. Why? Well, to communicate his compassion to the untouchable, but also to take that uncleanliness from the man onto himself. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at the deaf man, the deaf and the mute man that Jesus healed, and he took him aside and he touched his ears and he touched his tongue and he looked up to heaven and there was a lot of movement with his hands. Why? Because Jesus was signing to this deaf man, this man who could not hear Jesus' words. And so out of compassion, we see Jesus meeting people where they are. Jesus today meets us in our uncleanliness and our brokenness to love, heal, and forgive. Don't we serve a wonderful saviour? And so with this blind man, we have to ask, why the partial healing? You know, why did he not just restore sight immediately like he did in other cases? 
Well, Jesus is using this healing of the blind man as a parable to encourage the disciples. You see, the disciples are just like the blind man when it comes to spiritual matters. When Jesus first called the disciples, they were blind. They were clueless to who Jesus was. But as the gospel unfolds, they gradually begin to see who Jesus is. But they start to see him dimly. And spiritually, Jesus is like a tree walking around for the disciples. But just as the blind man went from darkness to partial sight to full sight, so are the disciples as they journey with Jesus from the beginning right through to the cross. And we see it happening today with the disciples in verse 27. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say that I am? And here it is. Here's that big question. The first time we hear it on Jesus' lips. It's the biggest question the disciples will ever have to answer. It's the biggest question you will ever have to answer. Who is Jesus? Verse 28. They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others say one of the prophets. And, it, and it's a good answer as far as it goes. It's similar to the discussion in the royal court that we had read before in Mark chapter 6. Those around Herod were saying Jesus was, well, he's like Elijah or one of the prophets. Herod himself thought he was John the Baptist raised from the dead. But we see here, as well as in chapter 6, a summary of what people were thinking about who Jesus was. And it's a little bit like today. If you were to go out on the street and ask people, you might, some people might say, well, he was a good man. Jesus was a good man who did good things. Someone else might say, well, Jesus was a good teacher. Someone else might say, oh, well, I think he was the head of the church. And that's the sort of discussion that was happening around Jesus. And then reply, the disciples were accurate, but it wasn't personal. It was telling Jesus what other people think. It's a little bit like if someone says, well, who is Jesus? And you say, well, my parents think Jesus is this. Or if you say, oh, well, my wife, well, she thinks Jesus is like that. Or you might even say, oh, well, our minister's always banging on about Jesus. Ask him. <laughs> Something like that. Jesus doesn't want that answer. He wants a personal answer. He wants to, he wants to know what the disciples think. Verse 29. But what about you? Who do you say I am? Jesus is saying personally from the heart, Peter, Andrew, James, John, Judas, and the rest, who do you say I am? And then we have Peter's wonderful answer. Peter answered, you are the Christ. And oh, how heaven must have rejoiced. How the angels must have raised a mighty shout, a mighty cheer that echoed through the heavens. Moses and Elijah, I'm sure, were high-fiving and angel choirs were singing. And maybe back on earth, with the riest of smiles, Jesus was well pleased. And of course, we too cheer for Peter. Finally, he gets something right. Finally, he gets something right and it's really important. And this is where we end our series in Mark. A little bit of a cliffhanger, really. For as the echo of joy 
reverberates through heaven and starts to die down, this gospel takes a much darker turn. You see, immediately after this high point, this confession, Peter falls off a cliff. He's scolded by Jesus because Jesus makes it clear in the very next passage that he will travel to Jerusalem where he will be betrayed, crucified, and raised again. And Peter's not happy with that and says, surely not. And then Jesus puts him in his place. For from this confession, Jesus then sets his face to travel to Jerusalem. And in the two chapters that follow, three times he tells the disciples, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'll be betrayed, crucified, but I'll rise again. And so the whole tone of the gospel changes at this point. Instead of who is Jesus, it's what will happen to Jesus. And that question, who is Jesus, keeps undergirding all the way through, but there's a real change to this gospel. Yes, within two chapters we come to Palm Sunday, Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, and the glory of Easter Sunday. But for us today, what are some applications? What are some take-homes from this story? Well, two, one from the blind man, a real practical application, and then another from Peter's confession. Notice in the gospel that blind people are healed in different ways. Here, Jesus puts spit in the man's eyes, and the healing was partial and then complete. But in Mark 10, Jesus just says the word, and blind Bartimaeus is completely healed. And then again, in John chapter 9, Jesus makes mud out of spittle, plasters it on the blind man's eyes, and asks him to wash in a local pool. Three blind people, all healed by Jesus in different ways. So we need to realize that Jesus deals with us in a different way from the person sitting next to us. Take conversion and C.S. Lewis. You know, his conversion was partial in steps until he was able to confess Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God. For others, conversion happens all at once. Think of the Philippian jailer. He couldn't sleep because Paul and Silas were singing hymns and worshipping Jesus. The jailer had locked them in stocks and thought that was the last you'd hear for them. But no, they decided they would just worship God. And so he can't sleep. And then there's an earthquake and all the prison doors fly open and he fears for his life, thinking that all the prisoners have escaped. But in an hour, that jailer has confessed that Jesus is Lord and is baptised. Now, you couldn't get two different conversions, could you? C.S. Lewis in an Oxford University, gradually, slowly, and then a Philippian jailer in the first century, dramatically, within the hour. And over there are similarities and patterns, Jesus deals with us individually. He knows us more than we know ourselves. So when it comes to areas of healing, forgiveness, reconciliation, our conversion or salvation, God deals with us in different ways. And so it's very important that we do not insist that people have the same experiences that we do, that they are converted or healed just like we were. Imagine this scenario. One day the three blind men, now healed, happen to meet. What do you think will happen in that meeting? Healed from blindness? You too? I thought I was the only one. Tell me how. And one says, well, he just spoke a word and, I was inst- and it was instant. Well, that's strange, says the second. 
For me, there was spit in the eyes, and it was gradual. And the third says, well, mine was nothing like that. Mine had mud. I had to wash. Now, what's the best possible outcome of that meeting? What would be the best thing that you could imagine? Well, wouldn't they rejoice, slap each other on the back, probably hug, probably pray, worship God? They'd walk away encouraged? Wouldn't that be amazing? What do you think the worst outcome of that meeting might possibly be? Maybe they would argue with each other. Maybe they would say, because you weren't healed the way I was healed, it doesn't count, or at least it's substandard. One might have said, there needs to be mud. Sorry, there's no healing unless there's mud. It doesn't count. And sadly, we, we know some churches like that, don't we? And maybe some Christians who insist that because another person hasn't had the same experience, they haven't said the sinner's prayer and got a date and written down, because they haven't had whatever experience, then their salvation doesn't count. And there's a denomination in, in New Zealand that says unless you speak in tongues, it doesn't count. Uh, and that's very wrong for a number of reasons. But there is a tendency for churches and Christians to compare each other and insist that they follow the same pattern. Yet when it comes to our salvation, it doesn't really matter how we get to the stage where we confess Jesus is the Christ. It's just that we do. And we help along each other along the way, and there are ways that we can help and guide each other. But let us not insist that everyone has to experience Christ in exactly the same way that we do. Most of the time, the Word of God and experience line up. But whenever experience and the Word of God doesn't line up, then it's the experience that falls away and we trust in God's Word. So that's the first take-home. God deals with us in different ways. Let us give space for other people to experience God in the way that he wants them to. The second take-home is to do with the confession. Some of us are like C.S. Lewis in his university room. We may not be kicking or screaming and looking for an escape route like C.S. Lewis. No, we believe in God, but the God we believe in is distant. He's a God that we think if we keep our nose clean, we try hard and have the best intentions, then everything's okay. But that's not enough. For in many respects, I've just described the Pharisee. Pharisees believed right things about God. They tried their best, and most of the time they had good intentions. But sin is so deceitful. Our hearts, when left to themselves, are so calloused. And even on a good day, our motives are mixed. And then when you throw in the mix Satan's lies, which are subtle and so believable, it is possible to keep ourselves at a distance from the living God. But one day, when we breathe our last and we face God on the throne of judgment, there is one question that he will ask us. And do you know what that question is? Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? You must make up your mind. You can't hedge your bets. And he doesn't want, well, the minister told me Jesus was this, or my parents said Jesus was that, or I once read in the Bible that Jesus did that. No, he doesn't want that sort of tick-the-box sort of answer, that Sunday school answer. He, doesn't, he wants that heartfelt and personal answer. And so today, 
Today, Jesus is asking, who am I? Who am I to you? 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Today, God is asking you the most important question you will ever have to answer. And he wants to know from the heart what you think. Much is at stake, all eternity. Romans chapter 10, verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, that he is the Christ, that he is the Son of God, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. In a moment, I'm going to ask you uh, to stand. Uh, we'll stand as a, as a congregation. And we're going to read out Mark chapter 8, verse 29 aloud together. But when we get to the part that reads, Peter answered, you are the Christ, I want you to substitute your own name. And so in a moment, I'll be saying, Douglas answered, you are the Christ. And I want you to put your name in there. Now I can see a couple of Peters here. That makes it really easy for you guys. <laughs> the rest of us have to think a bit harder. Now, I don't want to shoehorn anyone into to a confession they're not ready for. You know, um, if you're not ready to say Jesus is the Christ, if you're like C.S. Lewis was before his conversion, <laughs> either running from God or, or still working it out, then uh, you can just say Peter there, or because we're Kiwis, you can just mumble something. It's tentative what we do in these sort of things. Um, so I don't want to force you to say something you don't want to say. But on the same th way, I think this is a wonderful way to end this series. All the way we've been looking, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus to you? And then we have Peter answering it so well for us. So uh, you can see it on the screen, or you can follow it on the bit of paper in front of you. And uh, so let's stand. Let's stand. Let's just say this together. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Douglas answered, you are the Christ. We're going to say that again because we've just got up and stretched. And it's not like God didn't hear. It's not like he was out having a cup of tea and he said, what, what, did I, did I miss something? He's listening. But let's just think about this and, and do this again. And because we stand with Peter. You know, we stand with Peter, who was a frail disciple, did his best and had a heart for Jesus, and that describes most of us. So let's say this one more time. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Douglas answered, you are the Christ. As the worship team go up the front, let's pray. Let's stand and pray.